This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are going to talk cyber security. Now, it, that's a big term, but we're going to kind of boil it down into a couple of areas because we tend to think, oh, well, everybody always overreacts to this whole cybersecurity thing. I've been entering my credit card online to pay for stuff. Nothing's happened. That first time, remember the first time you put your credit card in online? You went, I don't know if I push this. Do I push this? Do I hit this? The numbers are all there, but I can take them out. I could make one wrong. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should just say, then then whoever's out there will find the wrong one, and then I'll just kind of sneak around the back and give the right one. That Okay. You eventually hit the button. You eventually bought the thing. And if you bought it from, who knows, it probably arrived on your porch the next day. We live in a crazy world. Look at the guys who fell down the hill in New Jersey, and one had an Apple Watch, and it told 911, kind of, hey, these guys are in trouble. Can you come and find them? We're going to talk about the fact that Canadians, according to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, have lost more than $43 million so far this year, this year, to cyber criminals. But first, we want to welcome a very special guest to the studio, tech journalist Carmi Levy. How are things? They are great. I'm so glad to be here, Mike. Hey, it's great to have you here. Can we pick your brain? Because th- that's a good thing to do. It, oh, it I would hurt. love that. Absolutely. I will I will talk cybersecurity and wearables <laughs> until, until I run out of breath. Well, you have a very nice watch on right now, but yeah. it. I watched it here. Carmi is sitting right across the desk from me right now and has a beautiful watch and it's got a big watch face on it. And I was looking at it thinking, well, I thought maybe you'd have like – an Apple Watch or the equivalent of it. And then I thought, no, you get a really fancy watch. And then as he tilted his arm, this digital screen mm-hmm. popped up on it. So what are you wearing? So I'm wearing a Samsung Galaxy Watch, which is kind of like their big, chunky smart watch. It's the Samsung equivalent to an Apple Watch. It's just... It's, it was, I, I didn't want to wear the same watch that everyone else does, so I went with something a little bit different. But yours but it, has style and it has, obviously, functionality. Yeah, it looks like a watch, which is kind of what I want. When I'm in a meeting, I want it to look like like I'm not wearing a geeky thing. I want it to look <laughs> like I'm wearing a timepiece. I feel like we're on the red carpet. Okay, but how much information does yours then transmit? Everything. So, like, it, it, it tracks my steps on the way over here. I walked across downtown, so it tracked all my steps automatically. tells me how fast I'm going. Uh, gives me my instantaneous heart rate heart rate tracks all of that over time. So when I get to the end of my workout or even just a simple walk, I can look at a very detailed graph. It'll share it with my phone and I can analyze this particular workout compared to all the other workouts I've had over the last week, month, six months. And then if I really want to, I can take that data, export it and do whatever I want with it. I can share it with my doctor. I can put it into a a file, a spreadsheet and do all sorts of crazy analysis so that I can, in theory anyway, lead a healthier life by understanding what is the data telling me what more do i need to do there will be people who said yeah but it's too much i don't need to know that my heart rate at rest was 62 one day and it was 66 the next day and that's fair you know i understand that like like, at some point you get into what i like to call analysis paralysis where you're just there's so much numbers that you're spending so much time analyzing you're not actually you spend more time going out and exercising than 
than digging into the spreadsheets after the fact. But here's the thing. You can decide what pieces of information matter to you. So for me, it's how long was I out there? Am I maintaining the same cadence that I have been over time? And am I doing enough to stay in shape? That's all I care about. I don't need to go too deep into it. But the numbers are there if I want to have a little bit of fun, if I want to geek out on, geek out on it. That's the good thing is it makes exercise visible. And by wearing a device like this, that it's kind of automatic. It's just in the background. You don't have to play with it. It's always tracking. And then when you choose, you can weigh in and take a look. And if you don't want to, well, you're still out there having a really lovely walk in downtown London. That's good. And believe it or not, they do kind of pressure you to doing it. You can get on a little leaderboard with a couple of friends yeah. and you see, oh, wait a minute, I'm 8,000 steps behind this person. I've got to catch up. Absolutely. They call it gamification. And it basically, it turns the process of exercising into a game. So you always want to hit. You know, I've got a 10,000 step uh, target every single day. So if I'm at 9,500 steps and it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm out with my dog, uh, you bet your bottom dollar that I'm going to do that extra loop around the block so that I can hit my mark. Or on, you know, there's there's a, a social sharing app, Strava, for biking. So I have a number of friends who also use it and I'm on it too. My data is shared with them and vice versa. So I don't want to look bad. I don't want to be at the back of the pack. So, well, if Carmi didn't do all of his kilometers this week, guess what? He's going for another ride. That's a good thing because in the end, a little good-natured competition means a healthier lifestyle. Definitely. Man, I, I do need to get a dog now, and I know my wife's listening <laughs> Well, today. you can borrow mine if you want. Well, You're always welcome But I've her. done that where I've been really close to a step count, mm-hmm. and I get into that habit where, yeah, I, I want to hit a certain yeah. number of steps, but I'll be like 500 under what I want to get to. Mm-hmm. It'll be 11 o'clock at night, and I'm out walking without a dog, just a <laughs> creepy middle-aged guy blowing down the sidewalk. And but, I thought, people are going to look at me and go, I don't know about this guy who lives in our neighborhood. I'm going to I'm gonna mark down where he lives. <laughs> That's just the positive side of wearable. If you were in my neighborhood, I'd come out with you and say, I, I know, you need those 500 steps. So you will guess what, Mike? So do I. And I'm sure if you ask, you know, of course, walking a dog, I get to know my neighbors because everyone's out around the same time. And so a lot of them have devices and a lot of them are starting to get into it as well. So you stop people on the corner and they look at your wrist or you pull out your phone. What kind of phone are you using? What apps are you using? It's fun. It creates this little virtual community. Everybody wants to get tips. It's no different than it's been forever. I mean, I remember growing up, I went to the Y near my house and everyone would share tips on exercise in the gym or in the pool. So it's the same thing now, just with a layer of technology and it makes it even easier to share the experience. This is fantastic stuff. Carmi Levy, tech journalist, in studio with us. So before we leave wearables, is this an industry that can go in any more directions? Can we get implantables yet, or are we going to get we're, there? We're already seeing them. There really? Are, yeah, there are companies in the U.S. Uh, and Sweden. That, a lot of it comes from Sweden. Sweden, they're doing a lot. They call it biohacking, where they will implant a chip in your hand. And so instead of having to wear – like, you know how you have a fob? I have a fob that lets me into my building at work, uh, which basically uses what's called a, a, a near-field communication, or NFC, or RFID chip, that you just put it next to the reader on the side of the building, and beep, it lets you in. Well, imagine if you took that little rice-sized chip and implanted it, and then you just wave your hand at the building and it would let you in. Well, now imagine if you could use that to pay for things because it's a smart chip, just like the one found in your card or your phone or your smartwatch. So yeah, at some point, we are going to be biohacked and we kind of have to decide sort of the where and the when that opens up a whole lot of personal security and data privacy issues. But It's happening whether we like it or not, and more and more people are signing on. And that's just it. 
when you say, okay, it opens up a, a big door, you can share your health information with your doctor. Your doctor probably appreciates that. You could share it with anyone else you wanted to. What if people that you didn't want to share it with were able to get access to it? We pay a lot in insurance right now. Mm-hmm. What if somebody knew, hey, your resting heart rate is a little higher this year. I'm thinking that that life insurance policy you have, I'm thinking that it might cost you a little bit more. That's the dark side of this revolution, Mike, is that you know, in, in when we decide to wear a wearable or when we decide to implant ourselves with this little smart chip, we are setting ourselves up so that we will be creating huge piles of data. So just the very fact that I walked the dog this morning created a data set that in the hands of somebody could be used either for or against me. So the insurance company could say, well, we're going to hike your rates or we're going to cancel your coverage outright because Oops. you were doing something that was inconsistent with the policy that you signed with us. Or I may not get the job because I have a certain profile that my data suggests is not in alignment with the corporate values. Or I might get to the border and they might pull that data and it might be used for something. Or uh, it might sit on a server. And how many times has this happened? A breach where, oh, your usernames and passwords have been compromised. Well, that's one thing. You can change your password. What if all of your health data for the last six years has been compromised? What do you do then? So anytime we create these big piles of data, there's always the risk that they'll fall into the wrong hands or be used against us. And let's not fool ourselves. The, The risk is large and growing. And the more we get into this, the bigger that risk becomes. In a moment, we're going to definitely get into that because we're going to talk about a very big number, 43 million 43 million, and that's so far this year, and that's in Canada. According to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, Canadians have lost more than $43 million this year to cyber criminals and stand to lose more. So what do we do? Carmi Levy with us, tech journalist, as we talk about cybersecurity. So we went through a lot of the information that more and more people are just having at their wrist tip as they wear things that measure blood flow and heart rate and steps and things like that. Let's now talk about some bucks, because according to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, Canadians are losing some big bucks to cyber criminals like $43 million. Carmi, we seem to just rush around all over the place. And like I said, you put in your credit card number, whatever. Ah, I haven't been hit by anything. That must just all be, you know, rarities. What do we need to know about protecting ourselves today, 2019, October the 24th, from cyber criminal activity? We need to know that this is the existential issue of our time. We are not taking security seriously enough, and it is already costing us. This number, 43 million, I laughed when I first saw it. Not that we should laugh at that kind of loss, but it is ridiculously small. That is only what's been reported. According They're erring to, on the side of... The cops are saying that 95% of cyber crime is unreported. I'd venture to say the number is even higher. I'd say less than 1% is probably reported. Would you want to tell anyone that you had been victimized, that you read something on Facebook and you sent someone money because you thought that they were actually stuck in Paris. No, Uh, they'd think you were dumb. Exactly. And so no one ever wants to admit that they've been victimized by something that was so easy to avoid or so easy to see coming. Yet this morning, just a friend of mine who I've known for years... Uh, on his Facebook timeline, exactly the same thing shows up in my feed. And it's, you know, I'm in Paris and uh, help me out. And, you know, this is legit, whatever. And you see and, like his profile? Uh, his profile. So obviously he had been hacked in Facebook and this is a common thing. It's, it's, we know that when you see something like this, like note from grandma, like uh, I, I help, help grandson. I need your, you know, please send me money. You know full well that that is like the modern equivalent of spam. It's, it's a, it's what's called a phishing attempt. And, uh, 
within five hours. I, I sort of I saw it and I checked back later on in the morning. Five hours, fourteen people had answered him, and everyone said, "What can I do? How can I help you?" Not one person was suspicious. Not one person said, "Gee, this looks like something I've been hearing about for a long time." Gee, Dave, I think your account has been hacked, and uh, no one said it. So, like, we, it's not even on our radar, and we're not looking for it. We're not cynical. We're not challenging things that should be obvious as as potential attacks. And as a result, we do ourselves no favors. At the same time, our own personal accounts, we use the same easy-to-guess passwords on every system. We never change them. Uh, and that, of course, makes it easier for hackers to ply their trades. So this 43 million number, I think it's a lot bigger than it is. And it's going to keep growing because we just don't seem to be getting the message. Wow. And don't you like watching – if you go to any workplace that requires you to change your password mm-hmm. every three months or whatever, you'll hear it from somebody going, oh, my work wants me to change my password again. I, can, I can't come up – and then they'll put one in and it'll be, well, you used that password three mm-hmm. passwords ago. That will not – ah, oh, I can't believe this. But what kind of an exercise should we maybe get into the habit of in order to make sure that we are protecting ourselves a little bit better than we are right now, which sounds like zero? I think we need to get used to the fact that uh, you know we're going to be trading off convenience for security. Uh, up until now, it's always been about convenience. You sort of – so you sign up for a, a service, your Gmail account, for example, and you make it so that every time you open up your browser and click on Gmail that it automatically logs you in. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that because then if someone gets a hold of your computer, then they have the keys to the kingdom. Maybe you should also set it on your computer so that when you shut it down and open it up again, it automatically locks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people don't, I don't want to have to do my password again every single time it keeps locking on me. It's so annoying. Well, you know, what happens if your computer is stolen? And I know so many people whose machines have been stolen. And uh, and if you know that it's locked, then at least you don't have to worry about them gaining access to your most most critical private information. And let's face it, we store everything in our email accounts. So, you know, they get a hold of your machines, your laptop, your tablet, your phone, your watch. If you're not locking these things down, then then that's that's the first, last, and really only risk that you're exposing yourself to. Uh, then we have to be changing our passwords regularly, using passwords that are not easy to guess, or in many cases, not even using the default passwords. We don't even change them when we first buy the device. <laughs> so how many people have you know their their TV box and the the the, the username is username and the password is password or admin. Uh, and this, but I shouldn't laugh, right? I shouldn't laugh. You shouldn't because all I need to do is walk down the street and I can see people's Wi-Fi networks from the sidewalk and I can log in using username and, and password or admin or no password at all on about, I'd say, nine out of ten of them. So 90% of the people that I've done in my own little straw poll, and don't get me wrong, I've not broken into these things just as a matter of a proof of concept, um, that that 90% of the people that I've seen aren't even changing the default passwords. So if we're not, if we can't be bothered because we want to trade convenience for security, we shouldn't be surprised when we're easily victimized after the fact. Tech journalist Carmi Levy with us. So maybe one tip before you go, should it be find a way to have one of those unguessable passwords? And then where do we put the password so that we remember it ourselves? Well, this is where technology can save us, Mike. And a lot of people are saying exactly that. I don't want to be bothered. I, you know, like I don't want to have to have a notebook with a million different passwords and then have to remember them all. So you can use an app for that. Dashlane, LastPass, uh, you install it on your phone. And then, and then what it does, you tell it, these are the systems that I'm on. I'm on Gmail. I'm on, uh, you know, Microsoft OneNote and Outlook. 
And you give it the usernames and passwords for all of them. And then the app manages all of your passwords so that you that only sounds have dangerous to, answer. to me all of it, a sudden. It sort of does because now if somebody gets your phone <laughs> and they get access to your LastPass account, they now have every – it's almost like a master key for all the master keys. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again – Understanding that you know any security is better than none, as long as you're physically. So then now you want to physically lock your phone, set it so it automatically locks after a certain period of inactivity. Make sure that it's always physically where you want it, where, where you know it always goes back to the same place. Practice that kind of security with a password management app, and that goes a long way toward covering all the sort of risks that we expose ourselves to when it comes time to hackers getting into our accounts. Great tip. Okay. All right. Well, that's and they're that's free, a, which is even better. I like free. Yeah, I like free. That's a, a lot. good price for me. Well, so is this advice from you. So thank you very much for providing it for us. Anytime at all, Mike. We'll have to do this again. I look forward to it. Carmi Levy, tech journalist in studio. Today is World Polio Day, and as much as we don't hear a lot about polio. We don't talk a lot about polio. Polio still does exist. And this is an important thing to recognize. It's not like we can go back and and see people who have a lot of braces because those were very common at one point or people who were actually in an iron lung ward. That was a thing at one point. We have done a lot to eradicate Polio. However, we haven't eliminated polio. It still does exist. And in talking about the disease, it's probably best to find out what it is like to live with polio. And our next guest knows that. Please welcome Ron Racer to the show. Ron, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. You contracted polio when? Uh, 1946. Okay. I was four years old, and uh, so I've lived with it for 73 years now. Wow. Now, how has it affected your life from the age of four all the way through to <laughs> where you are right now? Well, I think it's made it stronger, actually, in the end. Uh, my, one, my right side was affected, and I have really no muscles from my knee down and my one leg. And so my ankle used to flop, and I used to wear a brace. And uh, they fused my ankle, so now I just roll on it, and I have a, a orthotic that goes in my shoe. My one, my one foot is size six; the other one is size eight and a half. So that was a, that's still a problem, obviously. And. Uh, I, my my grandmother used to tell me that uh, well he does pretty well for you know someone with a leg like he's got and that used to drive me you know I used to uh, say I can be as good as anybody so I guess in a way I'm an overachiever love it you know now Ron do you remember when you were four years old some of what contracting polio was like or were you too young at that point I think I was probably too young I remember being very stiff. And I used to have a chiropractor come once a week to help limber my muscles up and so on. So, uh, but I don't remember a whole lot at that point. There were four of us that got it at the same time, and I turned out to be the luckiest of the four, so that was good for me. Really? Now, four in your family, in your class? No, in, my, in our area. We area. had 
farming community down near Toronto, so it was that's where it was. Okay. Yeah. We're talking with Ron Reeser. It is World Polio Day, and Ron has lived with polio since the age of four. When do you remember starting to, to really notice that it was affecting you, that your leg was experiencing effects? I don't really remember. I just, I just, I, it's always been there. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I just, it's, it's just always been there with me. Do you look now and say, hey, if we could eliminate polio, if it was gone, we need to do everything we can to do that? Do you, would you have a voice like that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I know the Rotary Club has done a, a great deal for it, and uh, anything I can do to help would be great. What exactly do you think about when, when you think about the fact that there are people who, who maybe don't want to vaccinate their kids or, or don't necessarily think about things like polio and the fact that we're trying to get this off the map and we do have a shot at that? Well, I think vaccination is the only way to go. I, it makes no sense to me not to do that. Uh, I know people with polio that it has come back on them. It's called post-polio syndrome where your muscles start to cramp up again and so on. And uh, every time I get a cramp, I, I think about that, but uh, I'm, it hasn't come back to me yet. And if that happens, does it cause further damage? Um, yeah, very uncomfortable for sure. And uh, um, I don't know the exact medical things that it happens, but yes. Ron, you mentioned that there were three other people who also had polio where yeah. you were growing up. Yeah. What were their effects like? Well, one was in a wheelchair. One was uh, bedridden for the rest of their life. Um, you know, so it was, I was lucky. Yeah. Well, like you say, it's, it's made you stronger. It's made you a stronger oh, yeah, person. Like, uh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I play golf four or five times a week and go to the gym and, you know. Amazing. Well, I love stories that, that do that, where someone says, hey, you know what? This could affect me. Maybe it does affect yeah. me a little bit, but yeah. I'll overcome it. Yeah. Ron, yeah. please keep that attitude. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Mike. Take Have care. Have a great day. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Ron Reeser. Ron lives with polio, so it's World Polio Day, and that's why we're having this conversation right now, because there is the opportunity to try and eliminate polio. And Ron made mention of the Rotary Club and the work that they have done in the fight against polio. And we're going to be talking with Joan Fisher, who has been very involved in that particular fight. And we'll do that in just a little while because they work globally. Because we're not maybe as affected here in North America, as certainly we used to be, but certainly not as affected as some locations around the world. There's what they call mistrust in some countries. Pakistan, um, if you look at, at some of the concerns they have there about vaccinations, or, you know, it's it's pretty wild to see some of the other countries where this is still pretty prevalent. We've had the United Arab Emirates, which is providing a lot of funding to combat polio. But as Ron says, hey, it is what it is. He's not going to go back. But when somebody says, hey, should we do what we can to get people vaccinated, to, to take care? Absolutely. That was his word. Absolutely, we should be doing that. And yet, you have the concern that some people are not. There is vaccine hesitancy. 
And there's been so much messaging that, again, you can go and blame social media over for spreading, hey, you know, this could happen or it causes this or it does this. And if you've got a small child in your hands, you don't want to do anything that's going to hurt them. You you can't possibly, you know, think like the parent does when you're looking down at your child and saying, okay, well, I want to do this and I think it's going to make you healthier, but I'm not sure. And anybody who has had their children vaccinated at a young age. You know how that feels. You're watching them like a hawk for the next 24 hours just to see. Just It, it may not have anything to do with the vaccination, but you're still you're watching and, and you're checking that little needle mark. And those are the things that you can't help but do because you care for your child. So that's understandable. But if we're thinking big picture in this and we're looking at the science behind this, and you're dealing with something like polio. You know, we talked about smallpox a couple of weeks ago and the idea that that could have been completely eradicated. And yet the United States and at that time the USSR said, oh, well, you know, we're just going to each hang on to a sample of this. And then all of a sudden there's an explosion in Russia at the warehouse or facility that is housing this smallpox, it wasn't affected at the time, but it just shows how easily things like that can come around again. When you've got an opportunity to make the world a better place, you got to do what you can to take advantage of that opportunity. So we'll talk more about World Polio Day in just a little bit. And again, we thank Ron Reeser for telling us what his life has been like. And his life has been affected by it. To hear Ron say it, I don't think we could use the word his life has been compromised by it because he hasn't allowed that to happen. Like he says, he works out. He golfs. But does he have issues with one leg because he contracted polio? Absolutely he does. And that has never changed. And that will never go away in his life. And he will live with that concern that the next time he gets that pain that, well, does this mean that I'm experiencing what others have? and that polio is essentially coming back into my life, that's something that that he's dealing with. And that's something that, you know, if you're going to not vaccinate somebody and you're going to, to, you know, take that stand, that's what you've got to realize. This is the kind of thing you're subjecting them to. So make sure you're thinking about both sides. Talking about something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Polio. It is something that former Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien dealt with in his life. And it's something that does exist in our world. And yet, we're on our way, hopefully, to eliminating it. But we're not quite there yet. And there are some countries that make it a little bit tough. The Rotary Club has been incredibly involved with trying to eliminate, trying to eradicate polio. And former Rotary District 6330 polio co-chair Joan Fisher has taken some time out to join us right now. Joan, thanks so much for taking some time out. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and I'm delighted to be on your show to spread awareness uh, that polio still does exist. And maybe that's number one. We got a chance to talk with Ron Racer not too long ago, and he's lived with polio since 1946, as he pointed out. And he has had some challenges, sure, has never let it get to him, but I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that polio does still exist. Can you illustrate to what extent it still exists in the world? Well, 
through Rotary, we've been working on eradication since 1979. And at that time, there were 125 countries and 350,000 children every year contracted polio. We're now down to two endemic countries being Afghanistan and Pakistan. And this year, so far, there have been only 88 cases of polio worldwide. Okay, so let's look at those numbers again. 88 worldwide sounds very, very low. Uh, Is that something that you look at, that the Rotary Club looks at as being low? Well, we do and we don't, because every once in a while there's a flare-up. We have been as low a few years ago. The number of cases was down to 37 for the whole year. So this is a flare-up for us, and it causes concern. But in those two countries, of course, there are many, many obstacles, but we still vaccinate children as often as we can. And there have been even ceasefires in some of those countries simply to allow polio immunization because everyone is a parent and they don't want their children to contract the illness. What countries are we talking about that you do have challenges with? We're talking about Afghanistan and Pakistan. And because of the civil unrest in those countries, there's a fluidity of people moving back and forth across borders. And we do have what we call transit locations, where if we know there's going to be a mass migration, we put a pop-up location and we immunize all the children from birth to five years old. Hmm. Wow. And obviously that's not the easiest thing in the world to do in countries like Afghanistan, like Pakistan. How do you get that done? Well, there are many, many, many volunteers through Rotary, but there are also health professionals, a lot of health workers, who put their lives at risk. Because in some of these warring countries, um, there is the mistaken impression that the vaccine is coming from the United States to sterilize their children. So um, there have been cases where health workers have been killed during uh, vaccinating children. Really? Yep. It's hard to believe, but yes, indeed, that has happened. So um, there is even the challenge of perception. So um, the four organizations in the world that are working on this, the World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, UNICEF, and Rotary, we all collaborate, and we are trying to break down those barriers. And by using workers that have polio themselves, that is one way to convey the importance of getting their children vaccinated. We are talking with Joan Fisher, former Rotary District 6330 polio co-chair. It is World Polio Day. Joan, what is it about polio that Rotary has tried to champion and worked so hard to champion? Well, Rotary wanted a cause that they could unite under. And in 1979, we did a pilot project in the Philippines to see if it was possible to eradicate polio. Because at at that time, we had approached the World Health Organization and they had not uh, been too optimistic. And so we did it alone with many, many uh, Rotarians and volunteers 
and we proved that it was possible to eradicate polio in one country. So in 1987, at the Rotary International Convention, uh, we raised more than $2 million, and we went back to the World Health Organization and said, look, we've raised this money, we've demonstrated that it is possible to eradicate it in one country. Will you come on board with us? And that's when the collaboration started. So in 1988, we started immunization around the world. Hmm. Now, that right there sounds like quite the endeavor, and then all of a sudden, now you, you have continued that, and how many countries would you look at and say may have had an issue much like the Philippines then, and you look now, and that issue doesn't exist in the same way? Well, I can tell you that I was in India to do polio vaccination in 2007, and uh, one of the countries that they thought would always be endemic was India. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was around 2012 that it was eradicated. The, um, when I was there, the workers that were immunizing in the, just in, in the five communities where I was immunized over a million children in three days. And uh, India has been polio-free since about 2012. That's incredible. Now, when you were there, did you see children who were living with polio, see people who were living with polio? Oh, absolutely. And uh, a lot of times these children are hidden because there's a lot of shame attached to the illness. What was interesting, we went to visit a hospital where there were children that had polio and they were there for different types of surgeries to give them more mobility. And the one thing the doctor of the clinic told us, because it's been eradicated in North America since 1979, there's no further research being done on it. And um, so they, those that are in countries where it still exists, they've been left to their own devices to come up with treatments to help uh, children who do contract the virus. And do you see that as being a positive, or do you see that as being a little unnerving? No, I see that as very definitely a positive, and they certainly have a lot um, of experience dealing with uh, polio, and they could teach us in North America quite a bit. What could we learn from them? Well, again, because we don't have young children that have polio, we lack the knowledge in this day and age of how to... Um, provide different kinds of uh, assistive devices. And sometimes it's a question of uh, very specific surgeries. But the other thing that we're lacking, because, again, it was eradicated in North America in 1979, is those individuals in North America that have polio and uh, were able to, you know, get braces or wheelchairs or whatever their need was, they would stabilize at some point, but now anyone who has polio, they're getting into what's called post-polio syndrome, where the, um, the effects are becoming more severe as if they had just contracted the virus. Wow, and that's something that Ron Reiser had, had mentioned to us. He's someone who lives with polio, and he'll get a cramp and think, oh, man, is, is that what this is? And 
does everyone who, who lives with polio, they, they have kind of the, the time when you look and go, uh-oh, is it coming back? Well, they did, but the, yes, it, that's true. But the other thing is health professionals here don't necessarily recognize it as post-polio syndrome, and they're often flummoxed as to how to treat uh, patients because we've had this long pause in North America where we haven't had to deal with people with polio. Gotcha. Okay. Final words, Joan, on on what you would like people to know in terms of the fight to eradicate polio, not just in India, not just to keep it here eradicated in North America, but to get it off the face of the earth. What would you like to tell people? Well, two things I would like to tell people. One is the importance of vaccinations. I know that there has been a lot of pushback on that uh, in current years. But it's really important for people to recognize the science and have their children immunized. And it's done as a matter of course in North America. However, because people are traveling much more and they're traveling to more remote countries all the time, polio is still a threat and it's only a plane ride away. And every individual has an opportunity to help eradicate polio by donating online to endpolio.org. We have partnered with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they will match our donations two to one, up to $50 million each and every year. In the past, they, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been made very significant donations so that Rotary can continue this work. And it's our number one priority as a service club to eradicate polio around the world. Joan, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the opportunity to explain the importance of eradicating polio. Joan, have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye now. That is Joan Fisher. Former Rotary District 6330 Polio Co-Chair. It is World Polio Day. And as Joan mentioned, it's it's a flight away. And you go back to our conversation with Ron Reeser and how his grandmother used to say, well, you, you do pretty well for a guy with a leg like that. And it's something that didn't let him or didn't deter him or or didn't hold him back in any way, but he still dealt with it. And it's still one of those things that does exist, but it doesn't have to. So think about Joan's words right there. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3 